Let us pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. The main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. And then the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. We don't know who said it first. Stephen Covey gets credit for it. It kind of doesn't matter. It's all about priorities. And what's remarkable about that statement is how many organizations, how many families, how many sports teams, how many schools, and we could go on all morning, fail to focus on what is most important in what they do. We have a nearly limitless capacity to obscure the crucially important. We confuse the urgent with the important. And it's true of all of life. Just one quick illustration of hundreds I could give. If you go to the bookstore in the kind of self-help section, you can find a book still out there about human relationships called The Friendship Factor. Now you have to brace yourself for the level of insight I'm about to give you. Okay, this is a book about how to have friends. All right, you ready? Okay, so if you actually read this book, which I have on my bookshelf, one of the arguments in the book, you ready? You have to commit to spending time with other people. Just kind of let that sink in. Now, that's a best-selling book. And the thing about that insight is, if you know anything about modern life, it's what we don't do. Most people don't do that. It's incredibly simple. It's absolutely indispensable for any kind of friendships. And yet, there it sits in the book. Well, true of all of life and true also of the church. When I got out of seminary in 1987, it feels like I should say when dinosaurs roamed the earth. But anyway, it's now 35 years ago. My instinct was to focus on the basics, to try to do what the statement was saying. And so I served for three years at Holy Comforter Sumter, which some of you may have heard of and some of you may have been to. And uh, then I left and went over to England and did some other graduate studies. And I had a chance to reflect, which can be a good thing. And I had a chance to reflect on my country since I was living in another country. I was living in Jonathan's country, which was an interesting experience. It was during the First World War. So we lived through the First World War as Americans in England. That was, that was, a, that was a whole story right there. But I also got to reflect on my curacy, my first three years in ministry. And when I had a chance to think about it, and three years is a good long time to get some quality thinking in, what I realized was my approach was sound, but my execution was poor. That is to say, my instinct of focusing on the basics was correct. It's just that I wasn't basic enough. So I stand before you today with even more of a commitment to focus on the basics. But just before I get rolling, let me emphasize as we start just how critically important I think this is. I want to quote George Gallup, who may be known to you, the great pollster. His dad was a pollster. He was a pollster. He's just died recently. He went by George Gallup Jr. And you may know, maybe you don't, that he was actually also an Anglican and had a lifelong interest in Anglican work and Anglican schools and Anglican things. But he was very interested in religion and society and spent his life dedicated to the study thereof. In 1990, he gave a speech and he said this, we revere the Bible, but we don't read it. We believe the Ten Commandments to be valid rules for living, but we can't name them. We believe in God, but this God is a totally affirming one, not a demanding one. He does not demand our total allegiance. We have other gods before him. The bottom line is that most Americans in most American churches want the fruits of religion, but not the obligations. And in case you're getting worried, let me tell you where he put the focus of his 
blame and responsibility. The clergy. For too many pastors, he lamented, they were afraid to ask tough questions. America is a church nation for the most part. Most Americans are either going to church or they used to go to church. But at some point, we have to focus more attention on what is happening or not happening in these churches. Listen to this, 1990, sounds like it was written yesterday, even more true today. Are our people learning the basics? Is their faith making a difference in their lives? Is their faith attractive to other people? These are the kinds of questions we must be willing to ask. So here's the question for this morning. Are you ready? What is the gospel? You can't get any more foundational than that. What is the good news? What is the Christian message in its essence? I actually ask this of every seminary senior in their oral exams. I'm on the board of examining chaplains. That may sound intimidating to you. It's certainly intimidating to them when they walk through the door. There's six of us, and there's only one of them. But I, I, I ask them this question. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? And since they've been in school for three years, I say, in 25 words or less. And I'm dead serious. And what is so sad is how many bad answers we all hear. So it's worth asking the question, all of which brings us to today's text and the Beatitudes. So if you'd be kind enough to uh, get your Matthew out, or if it's up on the screen, I'd be grateful. And I want to look at the Beatitudes from the perspective of this fundamental question. Now, the Beatitudes is the most famous section of the most famous sermon of the most famous person who ever lived. In other words, it's a setup for a sermon disaster. Because you should really just quote the best sermon anybody ever gave and then sit down. (laughs) And it's super well known, but it's not often preached about, and it's certainly not well understood. Here's John Stott as he introduces the sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known teaching of Jesus, though it is arguably the least understood, and it is certainly the least obeyed. It is the nearest thing to a manifesto Jesus ever uttered for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. So how are we to think about it? What I want you to do is I want you to think about it this way. I want you to think about it through the lens of the Lord's Prayer. Now, the Lord's Prayer is critical for us as Christians. It's not simply a prayer which we are to pray every day. It is a pair of glasses which we are to put every day on every day through which to see the world. And one of the sections of the Lord's Prayer is this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So here's a simple way to think about the whole Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in particular. It is thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It is the description of the will of God being done in the kingdom of God as God wants it. It is God's portrait of what he longs for in humanity. It is God's portrait of his kingdom as it's meant to be. It is the will of God lived out in history as God wants it to look. Are you all with me? That's what it is. And the reason why that is so crucial is because it's God's standard for the kingdom. So let's look at the standard for just a few moments I can't preach on the Beatitudes without going through them, even though you all know them super well. And let me just remind you of the standard that Jesus sets in the most famous section, the most famous sermon from the most famous person. So look at your text and think. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It starts there. One of the things you've got to understand about the Beatitudes, if you're going to understand them as Jesus taught them, is... 
They're not simply written to be remembered, and they are written to be remembered. They're written to be, to be memorized. It's very clear in an oral culture that this was meant to be deeply memorized at the heart level, but they're written in order. So when you come to the opening and it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, what you need to realize is that is not simply the description of one facet of the kingdom of God. That is, it is that, but it is also the bottom step of the ladder as you begin to walk into the kingdom of God. Here's Spurgeon. Listen to this. Not what I have, but what I have not is the first point of contact between my soul and God. One of the modern translations puts it this way. Blessed are those who know their need for God. So here's a question. How much do you need God, really? Not like, you know, need gas in your car or something, but how much do you actually need God? And do you realize what this sermon is saying about the description of the person who is living the way God intends? This person is living out, say, Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where no water is. The psalmist is saying in the ancient Near East where it gets really dry, a lot drier than South Carolina. He's saying when my throat is parts of thirst and I've been in the desert and I feel like I might die for a drink, I want God more than I want water when I'm in that situation. That's what the psalmist says. That's what this is saying. The message translation is this way. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God. Simple and important. Second, blessed are those who mourn. An intense description of sadness over the fallen state of ourselves, the world, and the church as we find it. The church is the bride of Christ. Some of you are married, and I hope that you're rooting for your spouse. But when things do not go well for your spouse, they do not go well for you. Part of being married is you uh, share in success and you also share in disappointment. Someone has said, I can go two months on one good compliment, right? Joy shared is doubled, sorrow shared is halved. And think about what it means to be married to Christ and that we are the bride of Christ. And if you look at the church in the world and how far short we are falling of Jesus' expectations, this beatitude means that you look at the church and you cry with the tears of Christ with knowing the standard for the church up here and seeing the reality of the church down here. And it wounds you, just like it would wound you if your spouse was in trouble or hurting or disappointing. You see the point. The point is it's talking about an inner longing for the achievement of God's rule and purposes. And I'm only just getting going. Blessed are the meek. I love this word. It's a, it's a hard word to get across in English. Meek means strength under control. It is a willingness to work and submit to proper authority. My image for it is a Rolls Royce at 30 miles an hour in the suburbs. Everybody here knows that car can go faster and can do a lot more. 
But if you're, if you're in the Rolls Royce and you follow the speed limit in, in a particular more, more uh, village setting, you might be going that fast. Doesn't mean you can't go faster. You have strength, but it's under control. The Old Testament example for this is Moses. The New Testament example for this is Jesus. Think of Jesus at the end of his life. You already know all these stories, but let me just remind you of this facet of his character. Because if the Beatitudes are anything, they are a description of the character of Jesus. You remember that at the end of his life, he's kind of bounced back and forth like a ping pong ball, right? Pilate here, Caiaphas there, the Sanhedrin here. He's, everybody's after him, and they're all asking questions, and he's constantly under fire. He's implacable. He's implacable. He's immovable. Pilate gets so fed up, he says, look, look, Jesus, look. This is the situation. Don't you realize I've got power to hand you over to be crucified? He's just fed up. Why is he fed up? Because Pilate has tons of authority. Pilate is under Rome. Rome is a big deal. Jesus is a little puny nothing. The problem is Jesus is not acting like a little puny nothing. Jesus is acting just fine. Like he's completely at peace, which is driving Pilate halfway nuts. So Pilate says, don't you realize that I have the power to hand you over to be crucified? And Jesus looks at him and says, you wouldn't have no power unless it was given from you from on high. Calm as a whistle. That's meek. That's meek. That is power. He could obliterate Pilate. Absolutely obliterate him. He's standing right there. And Pilate's saying, hey, I got all the power. And Jesus says, basically, you, you don't even know who you're talking to. With his life on the line, that's meek. Hunger, a deep hunger and thirst for righteousness. We don't know much about hunger because we live in the so-called first world, but to be hungry is an awful, awful thing. And this word is the word for hunger as it means like a real human appetite in a part of the world where you get one meal a day if you're lucky. And this word is describing a hunger and a thirst for right relationships. So the idea is things need to look right. They need to be in proper alignment. Parents and children need to be in alignment. Mayors and towns need to be in alignment. Cars and speed limits need to be in alignment. Uh, Children and schools need to be in alignment. And this person, wherever I drop him or her, in society or in the church, they come into a situation and they're going to see things that are out of line and something's going to happen to them. They are going to, inside their gut, feel this way. I can't stand this. This isn't right. I need to do something to fix this. Right? You, you say an oath in a courtroom. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you, God. This person is, uh, do you swear in any situation to seek that which is right, to look for that which is right, and to try with all your energy to make it right, so help you, God. That's this person. That's their instinct. Whatever it is that's out of whack, whatever it is that's not right, whether it's poverty or injustice or immovable uh, forces that shouldn't even be there that are in the way of people, Uh, structural racism. We could go on all morning. All these things, this person is so bothered they have to do something. And they hunger and thirst for life to be better. And they take it before the Lord in prayer and they devote all their resources to finding ways to make it better. Are you all with me? Still not done. Blessed are the merciful. Now remember I told you they're written in order. So at this point, if you're following along, The things that have been described are things that have been given. You know that they've been given because you can't even start up the ladder without poverty of spirit, which is you don't have it. You can't offer it. 
God's calling for it and you can't give it. That's where you start. So the whole of the Beatitudes is people who are in a posture of reception. We have a brilliant illustration of this idea in our prayer book tradition uh, with, the, with the daily offices and the way that they're written. The last part of the last office, there's five offices, so this is Compline. When you go to bed, uh, the last thing that you say is, Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace, for these eyes of mine have seen the Savior, whom you have asked the whole world to see, a light to enlighten the nations and the glory of your people Israel, and which is a statement of a very, very old man right before he dies. So you go to bed with a faithful man looking at his death and seeing God's blessing his life. And then the next morning, the first thing you say is, open my lips for my mouth shall proclaim your praise, which means what? It means you went to bed and you could have died and you got through the night and you could have died, right? You all know Engelbert Humperdinck's opera, Hansel and Gretel and the play. Now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Children used to pray that until the 19th century. Modern children don't pray it anymore. Is that a progress? I don't think it's progress. It's not. So, so, so the point is, the point is what, what, you, what you're saying by this is, I actually got another day of the gift of life, and I was very lucky to see the end of it, like, uh, like the, the old man, Simeon, who, whose statement I'm saying at the end of the day. And then when you get up the next morning, open my lips means I got a gift of another day. Here's a newsflash. You didn't make yourself. You didn't make this day. You didn't make this church. You didn't make this state. How much time do you have? God is constantly showering things upon us. And part of what the Beatitudes are trying to get us to get in touch with is how much we've been given. And when you get to merciful, what you have to realize is they've already received mercy because we know they're poor in spirit, they're mourning, they're meek, and they're hungering and thirst for righteousness. And when you're given mercy it's much more evil, easy for you to exercise mercy. Jesus is constantly teaching in forgiveness in the New Testament, and he's basically saying to people, the way that you learn to forgive is not by focusing on the wrong that they've done you, it's by focusing on the wrong that you've done God and how much God has forgiven you. You have to start at the cross with forgiveness and then move out to the, to the wrong that somebody's done you. In other words, you have to realize as a sinner how much mercy God has given you And then you'll be much more willing to give mercy to somebody else. You remember the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses, comma, as we forgive those who trespass against us. So these merciful people have received mercy. They're the recipients of mercy. And if you look at their life, they're constantly giving grace and mercy. And people that constantly give grace and mercy change the world, right? It's an incredible thing to be on the receiving end of a simple act of mercy. And the more important the mercy, the more the impact it can have. I remember as a writer with an editor missing a deadline, which is a nightmare. And I had to call this lady up and say, I missed the deadline. She said, "Uh, that's okay. You, You can have another day. She was probably in her 80s at the time. Didn't cost her anything. Made my whole day. Not hard. But but it meant enormous amount to me because I was on the receiving end of mercy and I didn't deserve it. I missed a deadline. It was my fault. It was my responsibility. And she just extended it. And of course, ultimately, this is embodied where? In the cross where Jesus says, Lord, don't hold this against them for they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Still not done. Pure in heart. You see your text, blessed are the pure in heart, which means what? It means 
two things. It, it's, it's an inner word, not an outer word, right? So Paul uses this language in the New Testament. It's a beautiful phrase, the eyes of the heart. It's a great phrase, the eyes of the heart. You actually see with your heart. For those of you who are music people, if you know Stevie Wonder and you know anything about Stevie Wonder, Stevie Wonder saw with his heart his whole life. Amazing musician. But if you ever saw him interviewed, he was, he was uncanny in his emotional ability to see a situation and to see a scene, even though he was blind. It was, it was a remarkable trait. And Paul says, as Christians, we have eyes in our heart to see. So this is an inner seeing, not an outer seeing. And you see this all the time in Jesus' ministry because the disciples are looking and they see one thing and Jesus is looking at the same thing and he sees something else because they're looking with the outward eyes, but Jesus is looking with the inward eyes, right? But it's not just inner as opposed to outer. It's undivided as opposed to divided. And there's a great phrase in Ephesians for this. It says, there's the Christians in Ephesus, and Paul's not happy about this, are tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Right? So they're, they're flitting back and forth between various allegiances. And Paul says, the single-minded Christian is who Jesus is after. And this idea of pure in heart is inner, not outer, and ultimately single-minded as opposed to divided. Still not done. Blessed are the peacemakers. Look at that word and think about dividing in half and make sure that you see what Jesus is on about. A peacemaker is not somebody who just prays for peace and wants things to be more ironic. A peacemaker is somebody who sees violence and injustice and war and strife and does all that is necessary to make it not be there to the extent that they can. That word maker, that verb maker, is an indispensable word in this part of the Beatitudes. It's not simply that they long for peace, it's that they do everything in their power to make peace. Think about some of the better negotiators that you know who've worked in international diplomacy as a for instance. Don't tell them that it's just peace seekers. They're peace workers. They're peacemakers. They strive for peace. And part of what it means to be a Christian as far as Jesus is concerned is to not simply long for peace and long for no violence and long for no injustice, but to seek to make it so. And then you get to the climax of the Christian life, the climax of the beatific life. And this was a real shock to me. I'd been a Christian for four years, and I took a course on the introduction to Christian spirituality, And I'd never heard this before. Here we get to the end of the Beatitudes, and our professor says, the climax of the Christian life is being persecuted for your faith. In other words, brothers and sisters, if you live into the Beatitudes the way they're written, if you live the life that they're calling for, it's much more likely that you will get more opposition in your life and become more in difficult situations than otherwise is the case. And of course, who's the ultimate embodiment of this? Jesus, right? And what happens to the greatest gift of life that God has ever bestowed on the world? He is opposed. He is persecuted. He is ultimately torn to bits. And yet, and yet, and yet, the book of Hebrews says, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, despising the cross, he went through all that pain and is seated at the right hand of God. So this is the standard. Not simply that they are opposed, but they are opposed and their response to being opposed is joy. And that word joy, rejoice, in that last part of the Beatitudes, actually means to leap for joy. 
So it's like a, it's like somebody in a hospital room where someone's announced a birth or something, right? It's that kind of joy. It's, it's joy that you can't contain. A Christian is somebody who is opposed by the world, and when that happens, they rejoice because they know that somehow God is being honored. F.F. Bruce says, it is the joy of an alpine climber standing at the top of a snow-clad mountain. That's joy. That's real joy. Now, why did I go through all those? Well, here's the thing, brothers and sisters. If that's the standard, then you need to think about its implications, and you need to think about my question. And here's, here's the thing about the Beatitudes. If you take them seriously, they only send you one place. Fitz Allison's way of describing it is this. The Beatitudes are one long introduction to the passion narrative. Or stating it even more simply, where do the Beatitudes drive you? To your knees, to the cross. Is there anybody here who really thinks that they live up to God's standards as summarized in the liturgy? You do know we say this every week, right? You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So is anybody, anybody here wanting to say to me after the service, you've done, you've done that in every facet, in every situation in the last week, both vertically and horizontally. If you do, I want to talk to your family <laughs> to check because I'm skeptical. Right? And that's just the summary of the law. But this is deeper than that. This is a description of the character of Christ. And see, this is the thing, brothers and sisters, we have to realize about the Beatitudes is the Beatitudes are a huge compliment but a huge challenge because what they say to us is we need to really realize as Christians that we need to have a holy dissatisfaction with the way things are. We need to wake up to the fact that God's standards are higher than we think. You and I are apologies for human beings. Jesus is a human being living a life rightfully lived. And if you hold up the standard of the Beatitudes, the poor, the meek, uh, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the peacemakers, those who are critically uh, opposed in every facet for being Christians and who nevertheless rejoice, I don't even hold a candle to a candle to those kind of people. Which means what? I need mercy. I need a way out. I need grace. So when you come to the altar in the Anglican tradition, you don't bring anything. You just bring your hands and you extend them out and they're empty. You don't bring your genetics. You don't bring your resume. You don't bring your grades in high school. Thank God, right? But the point is, the point is, what is, it, what is, what is the answer to my question? What does it mean to be a Christian? It's not somebody in a church. It's not somebody who lives according to a set of rules or ethical guidelines, no matter how noble. It's not even somebody who believes that God helps those who help themselves, as if you really could think that Jesus thinks that, right? Does that actually run up against the Sermon on the Mount and make sense to you? You realize the first beatitude obliterates that, right? You don't have anything, and when you know that you're bankrupt, that's when you start the Christian life. So it's not you do your part and then poor God kind of gets a little, you know, God is my co-pilot. That bumper sticker used to drive me nuts. <laughs> poor God, right? I mean, you're the pilot. God gets to be the co-pilot. Whoop-de-doo. You know, there's a, lot more, there's a lot more cars than yours on the road. Talk about defective American theology, my word. No, no. So, so what is a Christian? A Christian is somebody who realizes the standard God sets and realizes they're an apology for a human being, they're a sinner, 
and realizes that the comfortable words in the liturgy are right, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. A Christian is somebody who believes that we can't live the life God calls for. We didn't live the life God calls for. God sent his son to live the life God calls for, to die in our place, and we trust in him and his blood in order to make us right with God. In other words, it's a gift of God's grace. It's not simply that we've been given this day and this church and our family and this state and all the things I mentioned earlier, but this is deeper, this is richer, this is more important. This is the gift of new life. It means that we know every day that we don't live up to God's standards. And the, and the, the reason why the Beatitudes are so important is because they're like a three-dimensional mirror of reality therapy. You can't read the Beatitudes and somehow think that you can skip the confession in liturgy. You know why you have nothing in your hands when you go to the altar rail if you take the communion seriously, but if you take the Beatitudes seriously, you know that the posture you're supposed to have at the communion rail is the posture you're supposed to have all your life. One story about grace and then I'm going to stop for now. I love this story. It's about Queen Elizabeth. You may know about her. She was the Queen of England for a long time in the 16th century. She had many interesting facets. She was an incredibly gifted, incredibly strong woman. She also was very paranoid all her life because in many parts of her life, from many different angles, there were a lot of people that wanted her dead. This tends to motivate you. Uh, to be very good in terms of surveillance and security, as you and I would describe it. At one point in her life, she was just, it was a sort of an ordinary day, she sent her advanced spy detection team into her wardrobe room. This is a regular practice of hers. So they go through the boudoir, and they find a, a female page who'd been hiding in her closet behind some of her dresses, who had a, a, a stiletto with poison on the end to make sure that she killed the queen and that she died. And they catch, they catch this woman dead to rights, right? And they drag her out in front of Elizabeth with her fiery red hair. Anybody want to trade places with her? I don't. Here's a quote from the scene. She realized that, humanly speaking, her case was hopeless. She threw herself down on her knees and she pleaded and begged the queen as a woman to have compassion on her, a woman, and to show her grace and mercy and allow her to live. At which point, Queen Elizabeth, being Queen Elizabeth, said nothing. Then looked at her coldly and quietly and said, If I show you grace, what promise will you make for the future? This is a great scene. The woman looks up at Queen Elizabeth and says, Grace that has conditions, grace that is fettered by precautions, is not grace at all. That's a gutsy thing <laughs> to say to the Queen of England when your life is on the line. As they tell the story, Queen Elizabeth caught it in a moment and said, You are right. I pardon you of my grace. And they led her away, a free woman. And history says that of all Queen Elizabeth's faithful, devoted servants, she had no one more trustworthy and faithful and devoted than that woman for the rest of her life. It was all grace. It was all mercy. And she never had a question. That's, that's the gospel in a story. It's that we don't deserve anything. We're way, way, way short of the Beatitudes. And Christ has done all that is necessary for our life and our salvation. So it's not simply that the gift of life is free. It's that the gift of new life is free. And it's not, I can get by with a little help from my friends. It's not, God helps those who help themselves. 
It's a reminder every day that we're poor in spirit and we don't have what God wants. But if we ask God, he'll fill us in his mercy. So what does it mean to be a Christian, brothers and sisters? Keep the main thing, the main thing, no matter what. Let us pray. Lord, thanks for a breathtaking vista of the kingdom that you seek. And this morning we just all want to confess that we fall so far short of the character of your son that you seek in us. That you are so holy and awesome and majestic and that you seek so much for us. Lord, help us to lift up our eyes and see that you've given us so much more grace than we ever knew. And help us every day, Lord, not to presume on that grace, but to but to remind ourselves of that grace and to live out of that grace and to receive your mercy afresh every morning and extend it to others, Lord. Make us gracious people who understand that as Christians we are redeemed failures. We are loved messes. We are Christians who trust in the grace and the mercy of God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.